are, and I want to thank you, church, for your prayers, for your can-do spirit, for your patience with us as we embark on this season of change. So much change, so many things going on. Now, we're not going to get everything right, but I wanted to ask you to bear with us as you have been bearing with us and help us be a part of getting at least most things right. We need you to speak to us, to give us feedback, and we are so excited about where we are headed. We're so excited as we just prayed that God, to believe that God might do abundantly more than all that we can ask or imagine. Amen? Now, in a time of change, it's important for me to give you a little sense at the 50,000-foot level of where we're going. Let me state it like this. We are deeply committed going forward to creating a welcoming invitational culture here at Wheaton Bible Church where you're so excited about what's going on that you invite your friends, and we will be sensitive to your friends. We are really, really excited about that. But on the other hand, we are committed to the robust teaching of God's Word to substance, because we know we live in a world, especially the young adult world, where what we are craving is love, community, if you will, authenticity, and substance. So here's my promise to you going forward, that our commitment is to give people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear in a way that they can understand and apply to their lives. Now, this is a dance. Invitational culture, on the one hand, the robust teaching of God's Word. So pray for us. Pray that God will give us wisdom. Pray that God will give me wisdom as we move forward, as we move down this road. Now, that is part of the reason why I hope all of you got this booklet, Upside Down Kingdom booklet. If you didn't, they're out there um, uh, in different tables, and you can grab one afterwards. Or better, for those of you that live primarily in the digital world, you can download this on our Wheaton Bible Church app and use it digitally. Now, on page 7 of this booklet is a place for you to take notes on today's message. That's one of the reasons we've done this as we go through this series, Upside Down Kingdom, on the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a second reason for these booklets, and that is that you might use them to enhance the conversation in your life groups, and we want all of you to be in life groups, about how we can together apply what we have learned here as we gather to worship. So there's a personal place for you to take notes, and then this becomes kind of a a platform for you to discuss application in the context of community and allow God to speak to you as you wrestle with making the Word of God real in your life as you listen to others. Now, I also want to say, before we jump into our message this morning, that we want to thank you for the incredible response we've had to children's ministry. 
it's really been quite unprecedented because there's been so much change going on and not everybody knows what service they're going to attend or where they're going, uh, how it's going to play out for their families. And so we've had a wonderful response. We still have some needs. We still need about 70 volunteers on an every other week basis or so. And I just want to say to you this morning, let's get this done. Let's put this behind us because we want to be a church that welcomes families and disciples the generations behind us. And we need volunteers in so many different areas, but we have this opportunity in children's ministry, and let's do this together by the power of the Spirit. Now let's go on to the Sermon on the Mount and the crazy countercultural beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the very first gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to stand as I read, beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Now I want you to notice the promise uh, that's tied to the first beatitude and the last beatitude in verse 10. I want you to notice that the promise is the same. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Both verses. Jesus in the beatitudes, therefore, is telling us how we enter the kingdom of heaven. What people look like who are followers of Christ who have entered the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first four beatitudes deal with how we walk with Christ, and the second four, how we relate to others. This morning, I am going to focus on the first four. Recently, I've been reading a book by a secular author, and he says there's two types of virtues today in the United States. Resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are your skills and your accomplishments that you put on a college application or a job application. 
They're primarily externals. Eulogy virtues are those things that people will say about you at your funeral. Your character, your integrity, your love. Eulogy virtues are primarily internal. And the author goes on and makes this point. Again, he's a secular author. He says the central fallacy of modern society is that we believe resume virtues are the most important and the key to finding happiness. Here in the Beatitudes, Jesus says no. It's not resume virtues, for that matter. It's not even general eulogy virtues. It's the kingdom of heaven virtues, and I want to invite you to join us in the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus tells us how. In this credible, incredible, radical, crazy section of God's word. And one of my concerns this morning, frankly, is I'm not going to do enough justice to how different what Jesus is saying here is compared to the values of the world. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's take the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We live in a world of winners, right? Where people are pushy, people are cocky, people are, are, are self-centered, uh, people are, are, are filled with how they look, where they go, who they, they go with. Uh, they're very concerned about their digital presence. Now, we know that's the entertainment industry. We know uh, that we see that in modern athletics or Wall Street, for example, but it's also true of pastors, factory workers, students, especially maybe the popular ones. But here, Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us to be humble, not proud, Selfless, not self-centered. But there's more. Uh, Jesus is talking about a particular sort of humility, not just humility in general. Jesus is talking about poverty of spirit. How you see yourself before God. Now, Jesus isn't saying you grovel. Uh, Jesus isn't saying you never look people in the eye. He, he's not talking here about you never working hard to develop your gifts or abilities. Jesus is calling us to see ourselves in light of the holiness of God and our sinfulness. And so that we understand we don't have what it takes to live life, much less please God. To be poor in spirit is to understand we just simply don't have what it takes. And so let me ask a question. And the question is, how do you know you're moving toward becoming poor in spirit? Or how do you know, for that matter, you are poor in spirit? I'm going to give you a couple things. First, you can say, I need help. God, I need help. And as a matter of fact, uh, that's just a part of your vocabulary. God, I need help in this. 
Have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. Now, some people think that today that that's weakness and it's unhealthy. But think about AA. AA is the most successful support group in human history. The impact has been amazing. It's been profound. And AA begins with the statement, we are powerless to change. I am powerless to change. AA got this insight from this beatitude. Poverty of spirit. A second way you can know you're moving in in this direction is when you can say, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about me, it's about God. Uh, Didn't sleep very well last night, this morning, kind of woke up and I'm uptight with about all these changes and I realized, you know what I'm doing? I'm making it about me. Life isn't about you. It's about God. So you can say it's not about me, it's about God. Researchers tell us that in the United States, there's been a cultural shift from a a culture of humility to a culture that they're calling the big me. The big me. Where uh, instead of encouraging people to cultivate humility, we're encouraging people to see that they are the center of the universe. For example, between 1948 and 1954, 10,000 adolescents, 10,000 students were asked the question whether they saw themselves as a very important person. And 12% of the students said yes. 35 years later, 1989, the same question was asked, but instead of 12% of the students saying, yes, I see myself as a very important person, 80% did. Actually, it was 80% of the young men and 78% of the young women. There is a shift going on in our culture. That is the gospel of self-centeredness. It's a gospel of self-trust. It's the big me. A couple of years ago, Ellen DeGeneres was speaking at a commencement where she said to the students, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and then everything will be fine. And I look at this first beatitude and I say, whoa, If God is holy and the human heart has an enormous capacity for evil, as we see all around us every day, then we don't, we simply don't have what it takes to please God, to live before God. And life cannot be about the big me. So Jesus says, be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And third, and then I'll I'll move on, to be poor in spirit means that you can say, my problems, now follow me, my problems are beyond me. They're just beyond me. Uh, Jesus implies this here. 
I mean, let's think about Jesus. The Beatitudes point to Jesus, by the way. Each and every one of these Beatitudes is a descriptor of Jesus. So the Beatitudes point to Christ-likeness, point to the perfect Jesus. So Jesus, here we're talking about humility and poor in spirit. Jesus humbled himself and became a man, left the splendor of heaven, humbled himself by experiencing unimaginable suffering and then death on the cross in our place for our sins. And here Jesus who is in the midst of all that as he gives us a sermon on the mount is saying two things by what it means to be poor in spirit. First of all, he's saying become like me. The second thing he's saying is it all starts here. In other words, this first beatitude is a gateway beatitude to all the other beatitudes, really to the sermon on the mount. We're not going to get the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to be able to apply it to our lives unless we are willing to understand that life is not about me, that I can't do it, my problems are, are beyond me. So I wonder this morning, can you say, I don't have what it takes to please God? Only Jesus does. So let's go on. Let's go on to verse 4, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, because this beatitude is sandwiched between the other three beatitudes, which are all vertical, I want to correct a common misunderstanding here. Jesus is not talking about grieving the loss of a loved one. Jesus is talking about grieving sin. Your sin, the sin of the world. All four of these Beatitudes, therefore, are vertical. So, for example, this is King David in Psalm 51, way back in the Old Testament. When after being confronted about his uh, adultery and, and later murder, David says in a couple verses, let's look at these verses this, for I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me against you. And here he's speaking to God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here is a guy who is agonizing over his sin. And he's not saying I didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah. What he's saying is, ultimately, I committed treason before you, God. And so you are right in your assessment. You are right in your, your verdict. This is, in the New Testament, Peter weeping bitterly, Matthew tells us, after denying Jesus Christ three times, grieving over sin, agonizing over sin. Now, today... We don't even talk about sin. Frankly, it's one of the things that society uh, doesn't like about Christians. Today, we have reduced sin to a dessert, right? The sinful chocolate, the sinful whatever. And today, we don't quarter sin. 
But Jesus saying, whoa, 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 time out. You can't become a follower of Christ. You can't grow as a follower of Christ unless you take sin seriously and you grieve it. You grieve it. Now, how do you know you're making progress in this direction? How can we uh, apply this? Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, what Jesus is calling us to is that we are a realist about sin. Our sin and the sin of the world. I love the way one commentator, Don Carson, puts this in his call to realism. Uh, he says, Jesus reasons, and he's talking about this verse, that death is there and it must be faced. God is there and will be known by all as Savior or Judge. Sin is there and it is unspeakably ugly and black in light of God's purity. Eternity is there and every living human being is rushing toward it. God's re revelation is there and the alternatives it presents will come to pass. Life or death. Pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. These are the realities which will not go away. The man who lives in light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in light of them cannot but mourn. He mourns for the sins and blasphemies of his nation. He mourns for the erosion of the very concept of truth. He mourns over the greed, the cynicism, the lack of integrity. He mourns that there are so few mourners. So you're a realist. Secondly, if this concept of grieving sin, mourning sin, is working its way uh, through your system, it means that you understand if being poor in spirit means your problems are beyond you, you understand that mourning means your problems are sin. Your ultimate problems are not due to your circumstances, they're due to sin. The sinfulness of the human heart. And we tend to think that our issues are our circumstances, but I, I want to say to you this morning in love, your parents, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your job, do not make you angry. You choose to become angry because of sinful pride in your heart. I don't have problems because my dad was an alcoholic, and he was. I have problems because of my love's are disordered in my heart. And it's the same with you. Third, you're making some progress in mourning. You're moving down this road. When you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you understand that Jesus isn't just talking about being sad about your sin. He's talking about confessing it and forsaking it. One of the reasons, and I'm going to hear talk about Christians, followers of Christ, one of the reasons there's so little change in our lives is that although we may be unhappy about our behavior, we don't see the wrongness of it, the evilness of it, the sinfulness of it. Repentance 
in uh, God's word isn't self-pity. It's not merely being sorrowful. It's admitting sin in your heart and rejecting sin in your mind. It's David in Psalm 51. And the way you change is by admitting, confessing, and forsaking. Because you take it so seriously. Because as you meditate on the holiness of God and you think through these issues, why am I so angry? What's underneath that? Uh, why do I tend to be so critical? What's underneath that? I mean, you think about that and then you move to the gospel and think about the fact that Jesus suffered and died for you and you think through what it means that Jesus was nailed to the cross. And your union in Christ then you begin to move beyond the things that dog you. And so I wonder this morning, does your sin bother you? Do you mourn it? Do you grieve it? Is it a big deal to you? And I want to say to you, according to the promise of Jesus here, if it does bother you, you are on your way to the kingdom of heaven. And you can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven, conversely, unless you do take your sins seriously. Third, the third beatitude in verse 6, blessed are the meek. Now, honestly, of these four, this is the one I struggle with the most. Not that I don't struggle with all of these, but this one is like, oh, do I really have to preach on this, God? You see, now let me go back to the first one. To be poor in spirit means you are dependent upon God. But here in the third one, to be meek means you are submissive to God. You are willing to submit to God. Now meekness, as we talk about, isn't weakness. This biblical notion of meekness isn't weakness. It's not being down on yourself. It's not being a doormat. It's not never making any decisions. It's rather a deep conviction that your life is secure in the amazing love of Jesus Christ. And so with Jesus, who was perfectly secure, in God's love, you are willing with Jesus to say in the darkest moments of your life, not my will, but your will be done. I want to sleep with this guy, but not my will, your will be done. I want to lie to my parents. I want to lie to others, but not my will, your will will be done. I want to lash out. I want to do this. No, 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 not my will, but your will be done. And that's just something you work on in your life by the power of the Spirit. It's meekness. But there's more. Because meekness means freedom from having to prove yourself having to justify yourself because you are, know you are totally forgiven, completely loved, totally accepted in Jesus Christ. And so you live in such a way uh, where instead of saying, hey, look at me, the big me, 
You say, hey, look to Jesus, and before Jesus, I'm a little me. And look at how he's using me. Look what he has done for me. Because you know you're an empty vessel that God the Spirit loves to fill in spite of your cracks, in spite of your, your brokenness. And you know that the trial for personal significance ended on the cross when Jesus Christ took your condemnation. So meekness means you don't live a life of performance, you live a life of surrender. And you nestle into the arms of God just like a child, a two, three-year-old, nestles into the arms of a parent. But let me talk about problems because there's this theme I'm teasing out here. Uh, what does meekness mean in terms of your problems? Well, again, if poor in spirit means you understand that your problems are beyond you, and uh, uh, mourning means that you understand your problems are sin, then what does meekness mean? Meekness means that you know that ultimately your biggest problem is you. You. And you own that. You're okay with that. So, for example, maybe you're struggling with guilt. It was something that happened this summer. Or it was something that happened years ago or continues to happen even into the present. And you think, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and you think, yeah, I know God can forgive me. My problem is I cannot forgive myself. And I want to say to you, that's not meekness. That's pride. It's rejecting the bleeding charity of Jesus Christ. So finally, let's go on. Let me look at this fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Of these beatitudes, this is the one in my reading and just in my devotional life and other things that has consumed me the most. Because what Jesus is implying, now bear with me, what Jesus is implying is you are, I mean each and every one of us, you are what you want. Because you always move toward what you love. So if you love chocolate, you, you know, you live like this. And you're grabbing chocolate. If it's football, you move towards football. If it's music, you move towards your music. And, and on and on. You are what you want because you move toward what you love. So the question isn't whether or not you and I long for a kingdom. I mean, if you're here as, uh, uh, today and you're not sure where you are with Jesus or uh, you know that you're not a follower of Jesus uh, yet, first of all, we're glad you're here. Uh, but secondly, the question isn't whether you long for a kingdom. Uh, the question is, which kingdom do you long for? So if you're a student, is it your popularity? Or if you're an adult, is it a perfect job, perfect house, perfect this? Is it a boyfriend, is, is it this? Jesus Christ here in this fourth beatitude is saying nothing is more 
fundamental to life than hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what he means is for the will of God. For the knowledge of God. And you hunger and thirst for righteousness as Romeo hungered and thirsted for Juliet. As a soldier hunger and thirst to come home. It's called passion. And boy, are you passionate about Jesus. Because you love him. So I wonder, unfortunately we're coming to the end of August and we're moving into the fall. Uh, What are you hungering and thirsting for relative to this fall? What is it that you want? What is it that you will move towards? Walking with Jesus, coming to Jesus, living for Jesus is ultimately not a matter of knowing and doing. It's a matter of hungering and thirsting. Discipleship isn't a head thing. It's a heart thing primarily. So it's baseball season. Let me illustrate another aspect of this with baseball. <coughs> so say you're a, you're a really good Major League Baseball player and you set a record. I don't mean a little record. I mean a big record. Something to do with hitting, something to do with pitching, and it's a big deal. You know what happens after you have set that record? That it opens all sorts of doors for you. So for example... Anytime you go into a restaurant, you will never pay because you set the record. And so the question I want to ask as we're thinking about hungering and thirsting is what is the door that opens us to God? Just as a record opens the door to so many things. And the New Testament answer is not something you do, but the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. So hungering and thirsting, now follow me here. Hungering and thirsting, as Jesus says, after God's righteousness, is giving up trying to establish your own and resting in what Jesus has done for you, Jesus' record. It's the record that opens doors. And that's what it means to live a gospel-centered life. You rest and you rejoice in Jesus' record, what Jesus has accomplished, and when that melts your heart. Now look at the Beatitudes again. You will become increasingly humble. You will become adverse to sin. You will become surrendered to God, and you will be passionate about knowing him. The Beatitudes describe Jesus. And believing in Jesus is the only way these Beatitudes will be realized in our life. So you must choose Resume virtues, eulogy virtues, or the kingdom of heaven virtues rooted in the record of Christ. And by the way, whatever you choose, you will be living by faith because we always live by faith in something. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for what you have given us in your son. We thank you for these amazing uh, controversial countercultural words. By your spirit, apply them. Apply them to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue to worship this morning, I want to invite you to take this journey together as a church. God is speaking to us in the Sermon of the Mountain. And we pray that this week you will have your moment when you will have to say, not my will, O Lord, but your will be done. We pray that each one of us will walk together and respond to the Lord and, and know that Jesus is the Beatitudes. We pray that he will be the king over our lives. Now we know that this is not easy to do. It is even harder if we want to do it on our own. We want to try to do it on our own. We need people around us. We need a community that walks with you. You need a community. You need brothers and sisters, friends that walk with you in this walk of faith. And then one another we encourage to walk in this journey of the upside down kingdom. Here at church in Wheaton Bible, we have a program that we have called Rooted. And it's a 10-week experience. When we walk together, we learn from each other, we go to the scripture and then we see how God is leading us in our lives, saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. We have a video for you, and I want you to see it. Making true connections can be hard. You're busy, and so is everyone else, but no one really wants to do life alone. We long for community, relationships, a place where we can know and be known, connecting with others as we explore how to know God and serve Him, but we aren't sure how to get there. Where is that kind of connection happening in your life? Maybe you're hesitant to get that close to others. Maybe you wonder what they'll think of you. You may feel like you don't know enough about God yet or that you're stuck in a faith journey that sometimes feels like it's not going anywhere. You know what? You're not the only one who has those feelings. We all have times when we may think we're not good enough or not ready for real connection.